Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gens. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. So happy to be with you all today. I finally, finally got over my bronchitis. I'm going to leave a pause for some applause. Excellent. Well, today we have a wonderful set of two novellas to review. Wind Pinball by Haruki Murakami. At least it's been marketed as Wind slash Pinball to English-speaking audiences with the translation by Ted Goosen. However, originally these two novellas were published separately and they were the first two works that Haruki Murakami wrote. Let's get into the episode with some biographical info. There's an almost mythological standpoint behind Murakami's urge and willingness to write. Murakami was sitting at the Jingu Stadium in 1978 when, like a sudden revelation, he got the inspiration to write a novel. And that he did. He spent an impressive amount of time and stamina for somebody who's never seriously considered writing, writing his first novel first by hand, later with a typewriter. He wrote the first novel, read it over, it was all wrong. And I definitely understand this sentiment as somebody who's written a novel myself and have, has read it over and has decided that everything was all wrong. He then went and he translated the first chapter or parts of the first chapter into English and then retranslated it back into Japanese and the resulting style he purports or coins as his very unique style in Japanese. Nobody in Japan in fact was writing like Murakami at this time which is probably one of the contributors to his overall success and his very rapid success. As indeed the first novel, Hear the Wind Sing, which was published first in 1979, he submitted it to a competition for young writers and had he not been <laughs> the winner of that competition, he would have lost his manuscript because the one he sent was the only one he had. So again, all of this history uh, and the way that Murakami himself writes about it in the prologue slash introductory notes of these two novellas, it's just so impressive and so wildly interesting that a writer was awoken <laughs> in that sense. So these two novellas grouped together are actually the length of like one of his other typical novels. So we're going to treat them somewhat separately in this episode, but just know that they're grouped together at least for English-speaking audiences within the same book. 
So Hear the Wind Sing again, the first novel from 1979. One thing I want to mention off the bat is that first novels, it's tough to get them published, especially from unknown writers with weird styles, XYZ. So the fact that he got this published is amazing, especially considering that he submitted his only copy. So I just wanted to reiterate my astoundment at his origin story, as it were. There's an Ian Sansom review from The Guardian linked in the show notes at relevanceofliterature.com slash notes under the notes for this episode. And there's two points that I'd like to draw from that particular article about these two works. The first is that these two works, Wind and also Pinball, are now veiled through the guise and through the history of Murakami today. And so we're not reading his early works as if it's 1979 and everything has just come out for the first time. We're reading these novels with the retrospective viewpoint of knowing how wildly famous and successful and brilliant his work is today. And so anything that we read in these first novels is for a lot of readers, especially including myself or people who are very familiar with Murakami's work, it's going to be compared and it's going to be filtered through the lens of information that we already know about Murakami, right? So people who, who have been listeners of the show, we've reviewed a couple of Murakami short stories, for instance. We reviewed Norwegian Wood a long time ago. If you are like an OG fan of the show, I don't even know. I think it was within the first hundred episodes even. So People who are familiar with Murakami's work, they're going to approach these two works, these first early works of his, quite differently than other readers. And that's something that I thought was such a good point to start out the episode with, to look at, okay, we know a lot about Murakami, we have a wealth of information, a data bank, if you will, and we're applying it to these early stories. It's not like he's a fresh writer and we're reading the stories as literature for the first time. And the second is about a scene in Pinball 1973, which I'll talk about later, but we'll uh, reference Sansom when we get to it. So Pinball, the second novel, Pinball 1973 was published in 1980, a year after the first novel. It's his second, and in many ways, a follow-up to that first literary attempt. So there are the same characters, many of the similar scenes from the first novel, such as Jay's Bar, which we'll get into, and he's starting to play around a little bit more, kind of use different stylistic elements, different symbolic elements, which we'll also talk about. Uh, but largely it's sort of this continuation of a timeline that we will continue to work with through the next two novels of Murakami's that we'll review on the show, including A Wild Sheep Chase, which we'll review next week. 
what my thesis statement is for these next two episodes, this one and the one on a wild sheep chase, is that Murakami takes these three first novellas slash novels and develops his characteristic style. So I think that truly Murakami becomes Murakami within these first three books, and we'll talk about the evolution and a little bit about how. So in the second novella that's distinct from the first, the first has a lot of the sort of like working parts, the syntax, the sort of linguistic elements that Murakami will continue to use and revitalize and freshen up and hone throughout his career, but this second novel starts to include more of the characteristics and more of the symbolism and Murakami-isms and things like that, and by the third novel they're starting to become very, very developed. So let's go back to Hear the Wind Sing. We're going to talk about some plot. Hear the Wind Sing features an unnamed protagonist. This is fascinating because it's an I figure, but this person is never directly addressed or referenced by any of the other characters in the story. One thing that this tells us, by the way, is that the character spends an inordinate amount of time alone, musing, uh, having relationships with people that are more so surface level rather than a true give and take. And the protagonist, his quote-unquote best friend throughout the duration of the novel is called The Rat. It's a nickname, it just stuck. And this series of three books indeed is called The Trilogy of the Rat. So The Rat becomes an increasingly important character within these first three novels. They also spend a lot of time at Jay's bar. Jay is a Chinese-born man who ends up living in Japan. And as per the unnamed protagonist's thoughts about Jay, he's a quiet and quite lovely person, very flexible. He has an elderly cat in this first and I think second as well novel. And he speaks Japanese probably better than everybody. <laughs> so that's pretty much all about Jay that we get to know throughout the three uh, different novellas. The first book, what I wanted to mention more of as a literary analysis kind of point is that this first book is very dialogue heavy. There are some descriptions, but Murakami does more work with descriptions and descriptive episodes in the second novella. So this one goes very, very quickly in terms of the reading because it's just dialogue, 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 dialogue. There's a lot of quick changes. It's almost like a dance in that way. And it's a very digestible read in that way as well because it's not this like ultra high prose, like there's a lot of different um, changing elements in the story including there's a piece about this author which we'll reference in a minute. The second story in terms of plot there's the same protagonist, as I mentioned, uh, with the rat as well, uh, features in this story. 
the protagonist here founds a small translation company, which we will see developed in the third novel to a translation and advertising company. Um, and it's basically the two men working in an office day in and day out, taking small assignments, advertising in the subway, that kind of thing. And they hire an assistant who is, you know, sort of keeping everything together, um, making coffee, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and it's a very humdrum kind of scene because it's very routine. The work is, the work doesn't have that solidity about it because they've just found, founded this company. So it's a very whimsical kind of feeling um, when he starts working for this company. And in the second novella, the main character somehow has twins who are living with him, adult twins uh, who are women, and they're living with him and they both have an intimate relationship with him. So that's a big part of this protagonist's life. He doesn't really mention the twins to anybody outside the home, um, including people at work. So it's it's a very um, Murakami problematic, problematic female character's moment um, for him. And the protagonist, during the course of the second novella, gets obsessed with pinball. And he ends up wanting to find this particular machine, which he first encounters at Jay's bar, and then um, ends up finding again at the end of the novel in the scene that I mentioned from the Guardian article earlier. He ends up in the pursuit of this pinball machine, speaking with pinball experts, people from the pinball community. There's also um, a description of sort of historical pinball, um, which is from what I can tell from my research, accurate. So he talks about Raymond Maloney and the early pinball machines, different circles of pinball manufacturers, where they're located, like the US versus Japan, and where they export, for example. It's very interesting him getting into that sort of subject-specific discussion um, for the first time, this didn't really happen in the first novel, there wasn't sort of this deep dive into a subject, and this happens not only in the second novel, but in the third novel as well, when we talk about sheep, which we will, we'll talk about sheep. So the great scene near the end that I've referenced a couple times with this Guardian article, the, he does find the pinball machine. And he ends up finding it in the collection of a pinball enthusiast. And this pinball enthusiast has supposedly saved it from a landfill from getting sort of crushed and destroyed. And it's sitting in an old chicken storage facility refrigerator type of situation. And it's cold, it smells like chicken carcasses, and... He goes there sort of later in the evening and he turns on all of these industrial lights and all of the pinball machines and they're all, you know, blaring and beeping. He finds the pinball machine like in one of the last rows, probably because it's a new addition to the um, chicken pinball studio. 
And he has this sort of psychic connection and conversation with the pinball machine. He had gotten like this ultra high score, like a six digit score on the pinball machine. And so everybody, at least for me, I was expecting as a reader, oh yeah, he's gonna go and try to beat his score or he's gonna try to play the pinball machine for a while. No, he doesn't ever play the pinball machine. He looks at it, he has this sort of psychic conversation with it, and then he turns everything off and leaves. Um, and it's this kind of like very beautiful scene where this character is finally sort of internalizing all of the lessons that he's learned about himself in the first two novels. Namely that like, you don't always need to prove your love for something. And there doesn't always have to be a reason for something to occur. And one of the last scenes of the novel as well is when the main character says goodbye to the twins. And it's this like really weird scene. I just can't wrap my head around the twins. So if you have a better interpretation of the twins other than like figments of his imagination or these like sort of nymph kind of figures, please let me know in the description. All right, I will close out the episode here with some quotes and then at the very last last segment of this podcast I'll talk about my relationship with Murakami's work when I first discovered his work for myself and sort of what my evolution with Murakami has been. I've pretty much avoided talking about his work altogether on the show. There are reasons for that as well and We'll use that as a bridge or transition point into the next podcast, which talks about the third novel that Haruki Murakami wrote called A Wild Sheep Chase. The first quote from the first novel, Hear the Wind Sing, is in this section that seems like an exposition but doesn't really function like one about a novelist slash writer named Hartfield. And Hartfield is kind of like the unspoken hero of this protagonist's life. And he writes on page 79, quote, Hartfield was asked the following in a newspaper interview. In your most recent novel, your hero, Waldo, dies twice on Mars and then once again on Venus. Isn't that contradictory? Are you familiar, Hartfield replied, with how time flows in cosmic space? No, the reporter answered, but then no one else is either. What would be the point of writing a novel about things everyone already knows? Unquote. That line stuck with me a lot, even throughout like the reading of the next novella and afterwards. I was just thinking about like, what would be the point of writing a novel about things everyone already knows? It just makes sense. I don't know. I feel like there's some philosophy here in Murakami's selective editing of Hartfield's life and his work. Um, and I was questioning myself, you know, how Hartfield was being used as a device in this first um, novella. And it's such a sort of 
random, it's seemingly random addition to the first novella. There's so much talk about this third party that's never really a featured character in the novel, and yet he becomes um, this very key philosophical element, not only for understanding this main character because of the importance that this main character holds Hartfield in, but also later as we look at the development of this main character from these sort of very elementary like quotes and things from Hartfield to expressing his own thoughts and having his own expression of the world. We see him, it's almost like a Bildungsroman in that kind of sense where he starts to travel, he starts to get on his own a bit more, he starts to have relationships that aren't completely whack. <laughs> like that that might be a point of later interpretation for the third novella, but we have sort of this evolution nonetheless of this main character, and at the very least he starts to express his own thoughts rather than borrowing the thoughts of others, which is quite a significant shift because of how heavily this person, Hartfield, is talked about and cited in the first book. Now let's move to a quote on page 206. This is in the second, same book, second novella. And this is the rat talking, or about the rat, I should say. The rat emptied the last of his beer into his glass and downed it in a single gulp. I'm lost, Jay nodded. It's hard to know what to do. I figure that much. Jay smiled. The talking seemed to have tired him out. The rat slowly stood up and stuffed his cigarettes and lighter in his pocket. The clock said it was already past one. Good night, the rat said. Good night, said Jay. Hey, there's something someone once told me. Walk slowly and drink lots of water. The rat smiled at Jay, opened the door, and headed up the stairs. The street was brightly lit and totally deserted. He sat down on the guardrail and looked up at the sky. So then, he thought, how much water do I have to drink? Unquote. I love it when authors do that, when they take sort of like a metaphorical quote or phrase or sentiment and turn it literal. I love that. Um, but here we get a close-up on the rat, and this is one of the only close-ups we get. Um, there are a couple others. For example, the rat has this relationship with this woman um, from whom he buys, I think, a typewriter and ends up uh, having this very complicated, unspoken t type of relationship with the woman before he decides to take a giant adventure. In the third novel, I should mention that, that most of that occurs in the third novel. Um, but this quote really embodies the rat to me. How lost he is, how depressed, how unenergetic to do anything in life. He comes from a wealthy family, so there's not really like incentive to work. That's his own interpretation of the situation, I should say and ends up essentially smoking and drinking a lot um, and using those pursuits to fill his time. There's some sort of loose connections to writing and literature, which mostly come when the main character and the rat are together. 
So that's it for the analysis portion of the show. Let's talk about a little bit about my relationship with Murakami, how I came to Murakami, where I'm at right now, why I'm starting to review a little bit more of his work on the show, etc. I fell in love with Murakami's work pretty much the first time I came across it. There was an English teacher at my high school um, with whom I never took a course, um, but I ran into this person quite frequently because when I was in high school, I frequented the English teacher's rooms at lunchtime, so I was pretty much always in that area of the school. and. I first encountered Murakami through his short stories, and at that point in time, when I was first really diving into and discovering literature, I met authors most often through their short stories first to get sort of like an introduction or a taste of what they were writing and how they wrote and sort of what their characteristics were, and then I would dive into a longer length work like a novel. And this is the case for like Hemingway and Kurt Vonnegut and Murakami as well. A lot of the sort of um, authors, um, yeah, whom I started to read a lot more of later on. Philip Roth as well. Um, I read a short story of his. That was the first thing I ever re read from him. And so I read The Elephant Vanishes. I remember distinctly that that was the first book I ever read from him because I remember going to the bookstore to buy it <laughs> and this is like you know 2016 probably 2017 maybe um, and you know going down to my <laughs> local bookstore after school and I remember I was probably with my mom at the time I remember looking at the shelf and just being amazed at how many Murakami books they had not really realizing like his importance or his presence in contemporary literature um, just because I was encountering him for the first time and I didn't have that kind of perspective on him yet. And skip forward until now, you know, seven years, odd years later, um, he's one of my most, most read authors. Uh, I read his short stories like newer as well, like in The New Yorker, for example, or like just one-off short stories that he publishes even. I read them continuously. I've read like a lot of his work, like maybe not all of it yet, but I don't know, 80% more than that. Um, it's actually quite hard for me to find novels of his that I haven't read, <laughs> so I'm getting to that point where I've read like a lot of his devoir. Um, and I say that not to be like, oh, look how much I've read, but more to be, more to lend a perspective of how I view his work now based on when, you know, years ago when I was overwhelmed at the amount that was on the shelf at the store. Um, times, times change sometimes. <laughs> um, I've been convinced for as long as I've been reading Murakami that he is a magical realist writer and whether like the internet agrees with me or not um, is a null point because I just have found so much magical realism in his work over the years. Um, magical realism, right, was a sort of, like I don't know if you could even call it a period, but it's definitely um, 
a movement, I'll say, in literature where a lot of Latin American writers like Gabriel Garcia Marquez were writing books largely in the realm of realism, so things that were sort of realistic, factual, objective, hyper-realistic, what have you, but then there are these elements of magic, and these elements of like spontaneity, and these just great, amazing elements. I remember reading Chronicles of a Death Foretold um, in high school. It was one of the first books, honestly, of serious like literature that I read and enjoyed, because the magical elements made it interesting <laughs> to somebody who, um, you know, was younger to the world of literature. And I feel the same about Murakami, like his magical elements, like these weird like twins, <laughs> or just like talking cats in his other works, or, you know, the power of ears in <laughs> a wild sheep chase, like all of these elements make him eminently readable as an author and all these like non sequiturs that he uses and like random events um i didn't mention but for example in pinball 1973 there's this like i don't know there's this like box that the i don't know if it's like a telephone box but there's sort of this mechanical box that there's a repair person and the company who owns like the telephone wires or something like that or some sort of like electronic service sends this repairman to the house to replace the box and he does so and leaves the old one behind and so they end up having like a funeral for the old one where the narrator throws it into a lake after like he drives a long time to get this lake with the twins and it's like pouring rain and he's like so distraught and it's heavy and he just chucks it into this lake and it's this like really random like scene that takes a long time for Murakami to develop and it's just that's so characteristic of him <laughs> um, and it's something again that we don't see um, in the first novella. So I'm convinced that Murakami is a magical realism writer, like why would those random, like such, they're very like whimsical, charming elements, but they're not realistic in that sense. Um, because that scene with the communications box is taken so seriously by the characters. Um, and you know, there's a ton of other stuff that ends up like, Kafka on the Shore is probably his uh, novel that's most in tune with magical realism, but I would argue that a lot of his work falls into that category. Um, so that's sort of the lens that I'm viewing Murakami from at this point is, I've read a lot of his work, I love a lot of his work. Um, yeah, I love Kafka on the Shore, for example. I really enjoyed Novelist as a Vocation, which I reviewed recently on the podcast. I really enjoyed what I talk about when I talk about running, which is his other smaller biographical work. I think I recorded an episode on Patreon before that work um, on the show. And then I really just, any short story that, short story or short story collection that he comes out with, I will read. Like, it, I find them really, really interesting. Um, his last short story collection in particular, 
I really enjoyed. I read it in like a day. It was a long anticipated read, I think, at the close of the pandemic. Um, and so, yeah, just a lot of that really, really touched um, my perspective as a reader and as somebody who is now looking at his work from a more critical, analytic perspective, which honestly I wasn't able to do for a long time because his work is just so unique and so out there and so magnificent. Um, I felt before that I couldn't give credit to his work on the show and I wanted to wait until I could read his work and also stand back a little bit after reading it rather than reading it and just being amazed and not knowing anything to say. <laughs> um, and it took me, it took me books and books and books of his to be able to do that. So thank you all so much for your attention and I am so excited to announce uh, horrifying classics coming up here on the show. So excited, oh my goodness. Um, and it's been great to review more Murakami the last few months, um, and I've just really enjoyed podcasting with you all, so thank you all so much for your kind listening and your kind attention. Something that I would be remiss not to mention is my Etsy. I have an Etsy store. It is etsy.com slash the Elaine edit, E-L-A-I-N-E. And if you love personal finance like I do, if you love organizing, planning, that type of thing, and you love to do those things beautifully, there are templates of all kinds. They're digital download, super, super easy on the Etsy channel. I'm trying to grow this Etsy store from the ground up. It's a, an experiment more than anything. Um, and I've actually quite enjoyed like using my more artistic, like visually artistic talents in this way. I've never like ever attempted to make budget sheets or anything of that kind before. Um, but I started getting into digital design and that whole sphere a couple years ago so really this Etsy shop has been years in the making all of the profits from the Etsy shop go into back into the shop honestly for the moment um, eventually they might go into this podcast as well there's just maintenance for a lot of the things on our podcast like our website like buying all the books that we review all of that so the Etsy just supports this whole system and as well the Patreon which is directly connected to this podcast. I either review a new book every month on the Patreon or just talk about my life. It's a much safer space for me and a much more sort of selective curated space for me to be able to talk about things that are personally important to me um, rather than something that I'm just putting into the ether. <laughs> so I would appreciate you all if you could check out those resources and support the show. Otherwise, the best way you can support the show is through leaving a review on Apple, Spotify, what have you. I read through all the reviews that we get publicly and I really, really appreciate them. Any literary recommendations you have are much appreciated. All right, see you next week.
If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.